Psalm 51. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according unto thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me by thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure to Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Few psalms need less introduction. As I was wondering how to introduce this psalm, I found nothing. What can I say that this psalm does not communicate? How can I bring to bear its emotional depth that this psalm, by its very words, does not convey? For the heart of every Christian person knows the force of this psalm. It hits us from the very beginning, from David's cry for mercy. And perhaps the best introduction for this psalm is to let us pause and let us hear and feel the beating of our own sinful hearts in its rhythms. For this psalm tears aside our carefully constructed facades of innocence and health, and leaves us open to our eyes, our guilt, and our soul's injury. The carefully crafted illusion of our purity disappears and we find nothing but gross impurity residing in our hearts. And so David leads us through how Jesus separates 
as his people, pure, deal with the reality that they remain simultaneously sinful. He draws our attention to us being those that Christ has separated unto purity, how we deal with our remaining corruption. And in this psalm, we find a severe corruption, a scrupulous cleaning, and a sacrificial serving. A severe corruption, a scrupulous cleaning, and a sacrificial serving. David guides us through the canyons of our psyche. He reminds us of the nature of sin and the nature of man. David, as he comes to God, recognizing his sin, offers no excuse or mitigation. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. The righteous does not try to plea bargain with the Lord. No merit can he offer to assuage his conscience or excuse his guilt. He requests the only option that is left for him. He cries out for mercy based upon the character of God. David's only claim at the beginning of this psalm rests on the fact that the Lord has chosen to covenant with him. We find there that great and blessed word, chesed, loving kindness, God's covenant faithfulness, God's emotional connection to those he has chosen for us. And David says, upon that basis of your relationship to me, forgive. And that reality is that David recognized that sin requires nothing less than absolute erasure. And Work David cannot accomplish, but God can. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, rightly describes this verse by writing, as if David is comparing himself to a foul garment needing to be washed and washed. Nothing of sin may remain. In David, every speck of sin must be washed away with the cleansing David needs. Every ink blot that wrote David's sin in the Lord's book must be wiped away. Sin's corruption so defiles that every believer longs for this absolute cleansing, where nothing of sin is left in his soul. David also does not hide from the nature of his sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. His violation of God's law, the evil within his heart, stands like a highway billboard before his face, completely unavoidable. And though some may cavil at David's logic, claiming that he had sinned against God alone, uh, remember this is poetry. This verse emphasizes the severity of David's sin against the Lord over any of the other sins that he surely committed 
against Bathsheba, against his nation, against Uriah, against Joab, and making him uh, an accessory. This recognition necessarily proves the justice of God's sentence against sin. David is saying, Lord, I have sinned against you so much more than I have sinned against all of these other people. And his sin against all these other people was great indeed. But to be to to emphasize the justice of God against sin, that David deserves God's harshest penalty, he says, compared to what I did to Uriah and Bathsheba. My sin against you is the only thing I can see. For hell sounds cruel and unusual until we recognize the severity of the cosmic treason that is sin. David continues anchoring his sin not as an aberration of his character, but as consistent with it. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David isn't blaming his mother for his problems. He is indicating his own internal brokenness. Again, again Kidner, David's sin is an extreme expression of his, the warped creature he has always been. David is saying to the Lord, this wasn't a one-off. This is, wasn't an aberration of my good character. No, this is a revelation of the warped reality of my existence. And in contrast to the natural character, David credits the Lord for any goodness in him. Look at verse 6. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Lord, if I have any wisdom, if I have any righteousness, it's because you put it there. You were the one who taught me wisdom. God corrects and teaches his people how to live contrary to their warped nature. He forms a more noble character than they had by birth. When we see the severity of our corruption, we see that purity recognizes the reality of remaining sin. The purity of God's people does not include a pair of rose-colored glasses. It does not come with blinders to the habits of sin that remain in us. And for those of us whose testimony attests that we never knew a day when we did not trust in Christ, it bothers us probably more because we wonder where these habits come from. We do not have the ready excuse of those who come to Christ later in life who can say that they are dealing with the habits that they learned outside of the church. Instead, our sin habits perhaps arise from our willful toleration of sin. Indeed, they still do. David does not avoid the confession of the utter horror of sin. David in these verses is reflecting that this, what he did, is absolutely terrible. Of course, he does not advertise it to the world, but before the Lord God, who knows it all anyway, he confesses it freely and thoroughly and completely. He does so for he knows that no other remedy for sin will do. 
that sin must be thoroughly seen, identified, and confessed as God knows it already to be. For in our confession and our repentance, what we are saying is that we recognize that what God says about our behavior is what that behavior is. Against thee, the only, have I done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. What you have judged, O God, to be in me is right. How long will we remain turning a blind eye to our sin? How long can we continue lying to ourselves that everything is fine in the midst of our sin? How long can we tolerate the stain of any sin on our character? How long until we confess the severe corruption of sin? We see the severe corruption, but secondly, we see the scrupulous cleaning. For David draws near in confession, not in hope of mitigation, but in assurance of God's willingness to cleanse him thoroughly due to his revealed character. David seeks cleansing from sin and from its misery. David uses language from the cleaning rituals in the temple. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Both lepers and those who had touched dead bodies had hyssop applied to them to mark them out as being ceremonially clean. David sees himself in this vein as excluded from the camp, excluded from the covenant community, excluded from the worship of the Lord. He sees himself cast out and he longs to be reclaimed and given entrance into the presence of God once again. For he knows that only God can deal with that which separates David from his presence. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David prays that God would do a work of divine power. In his commentary, Gidner writes that the use of the term create requests nothing less than a miracle. David asks that the all-seeing God turn away as to not see his sin. He calls upon the never-forgetting God to erase the record of his transgression. He asked the Creator to recreate the core of his being in purity. He asked the one whose spirit made man a living soul to refill his lungs with that original pure wind. For David knows the misery of his sin. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. The Lord's chastisement for his sin has led to physical trauma. Sin has broken his bones. Such is the result of sin, even without the Lord's direct discipline. Sin breaks us, but God heals us. Sin deafens us from the sound of joy and gladness, but Jesus opens the ears of the deaf. 
But perhaps the worst fear David has in the aftermath of all of his sin appears in verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. There's something haunting about that verse. There's something haunting about that fear in the heart of every believer. And for David, it wasn't a rather abstract idea. David had actually seen it happen. For briefly, what David is saying to the Lord is, Don't do to me what you did to Saul. I saw what you did to Saul when he violated your law, when he sinned against you. And David isn't asking that he keep the kingdom. He doesn't say, O Lord, do not cast me out of being king over your people. He asks, do not take your spirit from me like you took it from Saul. David may implicitly be claiming God's promise to him from 2 Samuel 7.15, But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. David recognizes that above all, this is what he wants. This is what he most needs, that the presence of God, that his spirit remain. For instead of withdrawing away from the God who rightly may condemn him, David wants to draw near to the Lord. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. We often, when we think of restore unto me the joy of my salvation, think about our conversion experience. But that's probably not what David is referring to. Rather, David is referring to the Lord's deliverance from his enemies. David wants the joy of that deliverance to be manifested again in his deliverance from the guilt and misery of this sin. Certainly, as we look at it with Old New Testament eyes, this is uh, the way that we look at it. That the release of our conversion would be in, the, would be in evidence in the release we feel, we feel in the forgiveness that God provides. But that only occurs if the Lord graciously supports him with his spirit. Purity does not flee from the presence which alone can bring thorough cleansing. The psalm sees David drawing near the Lord whose law he had atrociously violated. That visage which ordinarily would cause fear and death, David seeks out with nothing to offer but his relationship by covenant. That presence that threatened to destroy the entire camp for the sin of the golden calf, David seeks out, saying, according to your covenant love, blot out my transgression. It's all he had to offer. It's all we have to offer. You see, repentance requires boldness and courage. We often don't think of it that way. We often think repentance in some ways, especially the world, the flesh, and the devil, want to convince you that repentance, confession, admitting that you did something wrong is a sign of weakness. But 
The reverse is the truth. We draw near the God we have offended, whose law condemns us, rightly understanding that he has just he can justly utterly annihilate us and be right about it. We draw near to the one who threatened to break out on Israel for less provocation than our actions. For we sin against the cross, we don't sin against Sinai. How much more offensive then must our sin be? And yet that same cross gives us courage. We plead no merit, no mitigation, but the covenant and the character of our God and our Savior. We draw near to a heavenly Father who has already demonstrated His love toward us. We seek forgiveness in the only presence from which every blessing comes. How courageous are you? How bold are you? Your repentance will often seem weak and incomplete if we cannot exercise courage and transparency before God. These these attributes function together, for we cannot be honest if we don't have the courage to stand before God plainly. How strong are you to stand before God and tell Him all your sin and to accept all his changes. Ask yourself in your heart of hearts, do you really want God to create in you a clean heart with all the sin that you will have to lose? Just how clean do you want the Lord to make you? David sees his severe corruption, and therefore he wants a scrupulous cleaning, every ounce of sin to be erased. But that leads to a sacrificial serving. David doesn't see the cleansing as the end, but a new beginning. He sees tasks set before him in response to that which the Lord will do, and these include both teaching and worshiping. Now, David only mentions teaching in one verse. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. David's experience becomes a lesson to encourage other sin-broken souls. This psalm is, in a sense, a fulfillment of this implicit vow. David today is teaching sinners the law of the Lord and the way of of forgiveness through Psalm 51. He speaks to us sinners to turn us back to the Lord. For if God forgives such a wicked sin as David committed, surely he will forgive us if we confess and repent. That is why this psalm is so powerful. It reminds us of our sin and need of forgiveness. It calls us to repent, but not as a holy person to a sinner. We do not read Psalm 51 as a saint calling reprobates like we know we are uh, to forgiveness. We see, we read it as a broken sinner to other broken sinners announcing hope and restoration. 
This is a person who has sinned grievously, telling others who sin grievously, yes, there is redemption. Yes, your sin is grotesque, but there is cleansing. And so, my friend, I have no desire to sound condescending about the gospel, for I am a broken sinner who has known the grace of God in Jesus. I have known forgiveness and believe that you can know it too. So how can I not tell you about that which can heal your wounded soul? From that which you could not escape, Jesus is able to set you free. He is God made man to satisfy the condemnation that your sin deserved. He lived a sinless life so that when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty suffering for the sin of others and not for himself. He did this so that God might be just and forgive sinners like you and me. Jesus rose from the dead, demonstrating the power of life in forgiveness. Will you receive what Jesus has done through faith? Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? I encourage you to take your sin to him, confess and repent that you might find forgiveness in him. Of course, for those of you who know me for any amount of time, you will know it should come as no surprise that the result of forgiveness ends in worship. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. One final Kidner quote, because Kidner is great. He writes, David, he longs to worship freely, gratefully again, and he believes that by the grace of God, he will. For the forgiveness of the Lord drives a person to worship. The forgiveness of the Lord opens his mouth to praise. And David recognizes that this heart and this attitude toward the Lord, the Lord desires more than the blood of sacrifice. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou desirest not, and thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Does the Lord need another sacrifice? Did he create the world for the purpose of animal death and blood? Did he make man as a mere instrument by which sacrifice could be made? Has he redeemed for any other reason than to make a people for himself whose hearts return to that ancient devotion to their maker and redeemer? He redeemed a people for himself not so that they could sacrifice, but so that they, he could return them to that Edenic state, perfected in that holiness, whereby they might enjoy their relationship with God once again. And so David calls all God's people to follow his example. Do good in thy good pleasures unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shall thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. 
Now, from what I said in the previous two verses, you might think that these last two verses, David reverted. Does he now think that the Lord wants the sacrifice of Jerusalem? But the sacrifices here represent the worship of the people as ordered by the Lord. This is what happens when the heart has been changed. This is now worship. These sacrifices, this worship is coming from the pure, forgiven hearts that the Lord will create in, in David and in Israel to fulfill the Lord's purpose of redemption. This is the worship of his forgiven people. For purity worships from the peace of a forgiven heart. We lose sight of the power of forgiveness when we make our repentance anemic. When we minimize how badly we have wronged the Lord, how we can we be amazed at his love and mercy in Christ? When we minimize how awful our sin is, we can grow easy with the thought, well, of course God would forgive such as me. But when the horror of our sin comes upon us, his grace and mercy look the more amazing. Or to put it in Jesus' words, to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. We fail in the power of forgiveness with our weak repentance, not only towards God, but in our personal relationships. When you sin against someone, you can rarely confess more severely than they know your offense to be. We often say, I don't want to make them feel worse than they already do. Well, that's a possibility, but rarely is it the case. Oftentimes we do so to protect ourselves, to mask from our own hearts how powerfully we can wound one another in even intentional ways. David does not try to minimize his guilt before the Lord. He knew better. He knew better than to do what he did and chose treason against the God who had made him king. And that's why this psalm has for us so much power. It reminds us of the forgiveness that comes to those who repent even from tragic sin. We don't need to commit such a gross sin as David did to understand that peace and power. We don't need to go down that road to understand what that ultimate freedom, that forgiveness grants. We simply need to remember that our sin is as monstrous as David's was. Let's pray together. Have mercy on us, O Lord, according to your covenant love. Draw us back into your presence and forgive our sin. Open our mouths by your grace that we may sing of your love. We plead not our merit, but the promises made in Jesus our Savior his cross work that has set us free. Amen.